Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and welcome to Future City, the show that asks the question, what's next for Baltimore? We have covered a wide range of topics on this show, from tiny homes to the two-party political system to the racial wealth divide. All of these shows can be found online at wypr.org slash podcast central. But today, we're tackling a tough topic, policing in America. Protesters clashed with police on the streets of St. Louis. No justice! Although police officers use force very rarely, it is three times more likely to happen in encounters with African-Americans. Police beating in Baltimore. A police officer suspended after video surfaced online showing him repeatedly punching a man on the street. Police departments in our country are struggling. In 2015, Gallup reported that public confidence in police was at a historic 22-year low. This was the same year that Baltimore was rocked by Freddie Gray's case and subsequent citywide unrest. While support has grown since then, the disconnect between the public and the police is palpable. Every one of us can feel it and see it. Here in Baltimore, just recently, police were shocked to watch a video showing a young officer beating a man on the street, seemingly unprovoked. That officer has since been removed from the force and his actions were widely condemned by the department. But what are the messages out there for future cops? Is this a profession that people aspire to? And what are police departments doing to mend relations with the public, possibly enticing new recruits in the process? So let's start with our own city of Baltimore. We'll then zoom out to address best practices across the state as a whole and try to better understand the future of police recruitment more broadly. First, it's a pleasure to welcome to the show the interim Baltimore City Police Commissioner, Gary Tuggle. Commissioner, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure to have you on board. Wes, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. And so first, uh, I'd actually like to start with a broader question. Uh, you are a native Baltimorean. Yeah, absolutely. Did you always grow up wanting to be a police officer? Absolutely not. Uh, Wes, I grew up on the east side of Baltimore within a three-square-block uh, radius, uh, uh, Biddle and Milton, Milton and Preston, that, yeah. that area, um, and didn't have a clue of what I wanted to do. Uh it was the uh, foot patrolman in my neighborhood uh, that I, I came to know, who came to know not just me, but but my entire family, uh, and thought that I would be good at it. And he recommended to me that, that I consider it. I did, uh, went through the academy and, and never looked back. Uh, I'm about to go into my 35th year of law enforcement. Bless you. And, and what was the response of your friends, your family, when you turn around and say, I'm gonna be Baltimore City Police? You know, it's interesting. Because when when I was a, a kid, my mother's friends across the street, they had sort of their own little social network of, of uh, 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 ladies in, in the area uh, who were hardworking, blue-collar folks. And uh, I, I still remember to this day uh, a couple of my mother's friends saying, that kid's going to go to jail one day. He's going to end mm-hmm. up in jail. And... Um, What's funny is I went back to walk the old neighborhood a, a few weeks ago uh, as we were doing a video about about my background, and I ran into one of those ladies who who had that that forecast, and she was uh, she was happy to see me, and I was happy to see her, 
Uh, and I'm saying all that to say you just never know. You, you never know where you're going to end up. Uh, I had no intention in, uh, in terms of going into law enforcement. It was that experience with that, that policeman, that young police officer, Rick Height, back then, uh, who, who, said, who saw something in me and said, look, you, you might want to consider law enforcement. And how do you think for the young Gary Tuggle, not even a police officer yet, who's coming up right now, how do you think they view the pathway that you've gone on over this 30 plus year journey? Well, you know, I, I think it's it's viewed with, with sort of uh, a mixture of emotion. Um, as law enforcement in general uh, has has had some challenges over the years. And, and I think uh, within Baltimore City more specifically, we're, we're on a course correction uh, to, to, to get our department uh, back to know to where we know it can be, where it should be. Uh, and during that course correction, part of that is a rebranding uh, that, that we're currently going through and, and, and re-messaging to the public, not just to the public in general, but to folks that may want to join a profession. Uh, we think it's hugely important that we let people know what we're doing, the positive things that we're doing. Unfortunately, you know, folks have a tendency to to focus on those few negative things that overshadow the hundreds of positive things uh, that we're involved in every single day. And, and part of that messaging um, is, is showing those positive things. And when we talk about the, what people are seeing and how they're interpreting in terms of recruiting, we see how the different images that people are seeing or will have an impact. Um, you know, we talk about the the recent incident that that, that happened in August mm-hmm. uh, with the officer having the you know having the interaction with the with you know with the person on the street. How do things like that impact community relations? How does it impact recruiting? How does it impact the storytelling? So things like that obviously um, uh, put a strain on uh, b- between police and community. Uh, at the end of the day, we want to have a low level of transparency with, with the community. Uh, but we, we also want to let the community know that we're here to serve. Uh, we're not dictators. Uh, we're, we're not here uh, to, to go outside the lines and, and brutalize people. That's not what we're about. Um, we are about trying to protect the community that we serve. Uh, and every single individual in this city has, has a right uh, to an effective police service that includes um, uh, not being hurt. And so when we talk about what the how the Baltimore City is then rethinking and rebranding itself, how what what are the type of things that you, that the department is actively doing to help to share and change a narrative, particularly when we're talking about some of the hubs of where recruiting and recruitment can take place? Sure. So first of all, it's it's we we've really defined our mission, vision, and values, um, and with that. W- one of the things and, and what that looks like uh, is the fact that integrity is at the forefront of that effort. Um, and the fact that everybody's going to be treated the same. They're going to be treated fairly and partially uh, and in a constitutional manner. That's hugely important in terms of regaining public trust. But it also sends a message, particularly to our younger officers, that the standard by which we police in the city of Baltimore is going to be at that level. We're not going to fall below that. It, mm-hmm. Falling below that is just simply not acceptable. How much of a focus and an effort is to making sure that Baltimoreans are, are part of the service? It, it's the hugely um, important. As a matter of fact, we have a focused recruitment effort uh, uh, for Baltimoreans. Look, we want to see Baltimore, for all of its diversity, uh, well represented within the police department. 
we are encouraging um, individuals from Baltimore to apply. We, we, again, have that targeted recruitment effort working through the uh, mayor's innovation team uh, that's being sponsored by uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies. We are uh, laser focused on trying to get uh, not just good, qualified candidates into the police service, but identifying those individuals that may want to join a service that may not want to be police officers. I mean, we have an incredible range of things, particularly within the STEM realm, um, within our labs. We have an incredible lab that's that's nationally accredited that I think we could really market toward recruiting folks from the city who may not want to be police officers, but instead be scientists or be intelligence analysts. Those things that aren't traditionally thought of when you think about a police service. When I think about the number of people who live in Baltimore that, that are in the police department, we've got approximately 20% of our sworn service are individuals from, from the city. It's interesting because I mean I, I think about my time in, in, in the military service. And you know one thing I've always said and I felt deeply about is you know, we think about national security threats, and I've mm-hmm. always said one of the greatest national security threats that we have is the fact that only about 30% of people under the age of 25 in this country, uh, between 18 and 25, even qualify mm-hmm. to right. be able to join the military, even qualify to be yep. able to join the service. And so we're talking about national security threats. It's how exactly do we create a pipeline yep. for people who are even eligible to be able to join the force? How is the police department thinking about the eligibility question? And, and how can we create a stronger, more robust pipeline for people who even have that as an option? So let, let me just sort of back up to one thing. I come from a really big family. There were 10 of us. I'm the, the ninth of 10. And um, five boys and five girls, right? Huh. All individuals and, and one family. But one of the things that I recognize, particularly as I got older, is that we all make individual decisions. Um, and the decisions we make come back to haunt us. Um, if, if there's one message I could I could sort of leave with, particularly your younger listeners, um, be careful what you do today, because it could ultimately come back to have a have a negative impact on you tomorrow. When I look at the number of applicants that get washed out of the process because of things that they've done in their past, it's 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 pretty tough, particularly with uh, as it relates to drug usage, uh, violence domestic violence, those types of things that not just prohibit them from joining the police department with respect to the department's policy, but with respect to Maryland law, Mm -hmm. right, that says, look, an individual who's used uh, drugs, let's say, within a certain period of time, a certain number of times, uh, is prohibited under state law from, from becoming a police officer anywhere in the state, not just Baltimore. So one of the things that we're doing to really try to not just create that pipeline, but maintain that pipeline. And I'm going to talk about the sworn and the unsworn side, um, is we have an Explore program, right, which takes kids that are that are school age, right, and it, it really introduces them to law enforcement at a very, very early age. But it, but it also helps feed into our cadet program, which is from 18 to 20, uh, that's a paid program. It, it pays uh, each cadet about $30,000 a year, and it serves as a feeder system into the police academy. Now, what does that do in terms of um, developing um, the the type of police officer that we want? It, first of all, exposes them to, to the environment, 
right? It gives them sort of an institutional insider's look at what the police department does, why they do it, how they do it. Um, but it also gives them hands-on experience in, in working in areas uh, that really define the police department. Uh, uh, it might be doing things, uh, analyzing reports or looking at crime data or uh, answering phones with respect to just getting things done within the police department that have to be done every single day. Um, and then once they go through that process, we hope that, that they're mentored by, uh, by members of the police department or police officers that could really guide them throughout the, the experience uh, in terms of going into the academy and then coming out being young police officers. We're excited about it. Uh, our cadet program was just uh, given an apprenticeship status by the state, which is, uh, which is huge for us. So we're, we're now certified uh, as an apprenticeship program uh, to take young people. Prior to that, we weren't certified, uh, which means that we could still hire cadets, but there was nothing um, to back that with the, ex- with the exception that they would come into the cadet program and then ultimately they were able to join the police department as, as a police officer. With the state apprenticeship program, there's a level of funding that comes with that. There's a, a level of prestige uh, that comes with being a certified apprenticeship program uh, with the state. Is Baltimore the only jurisdiction in the state that has that, or is now Baltimore joining other jurisdictions? I, as far as I know, we are the only police cadet program in the state that is a certified apprenticeship program. And so when we talk about the future of, of policing, you mentioned things like STEM. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you envision where policing is going, right. uh, that is, it, it might not necessarily be the same amount of cops on the street, but it'd be more technology. Yes. It might not be the same amount of, uh, uh, of cops having certain assignments, but it's maybe it's more things like using data and analytics uh, to be able to uncover and address, and address crimes. How are you thinking about the future of the skill sets that are going to be necessary for people when we think about the pipeline? And how do you see the adaptation of the police department changing as we're looking at the future of policing? So certainly as a as an organization, we're, we're making a cultural shift with respect to the people that we that we need in terms of uh, police officers because the skill sets have changed. It's no longer just an individual who's physically fit that can, you know, run a certain pace in a certain time or, you know, be able to achieve a certain score in a test. We're looking for individuals who have a level, obviously, of integrity, who have a a level of sort of uh, uh, caring with respect to a willingness to serve the public. But we're also looking for individuals that could adapt to where we're going as an agency, Mm -hmm. uh, where where policing is going as a culture, with respect to becoming uh, more data-driven, right? Individuals that could look down, uh, drill down on data, and, and come up with uh, policing strategies uh, that are based on the data that, that's in front of them, being able to interpret that data to, to more uh, effectively uh, police. That's where we are as an agency. That's what we're doing. We have these uh, strategic decision support centers, the SDSCs in the Eastern and Western District, that are totally data-driven uh, and, and in terms of assisting us in how we deploy our resources, our, our police resources within the, within the district, on, literally on a daily basis. We do that based on data. Um, so we're, we're really looking for individuals that are capable of, of looking at that data and, and then understanding the data. Um, um, once, once we get it at sort of the strategic level, uh, being able to understand it at the operations level is hugely important. 
again, I, I go back to, you know, not everybody wants to be a sworn officer, right? So we need individuals that can, uh, who are non-sworn, who are civilian members of, of the organization, that can take that data, take that intelligence um, from the sworn members and, and help bridge those uh, intelligence gaps uh, that exist uh, in policing and within our deployments throughout the city. What's the breakdown right now of sworn versus unsworn? Uh, approximately 2,500 sworn and approximately approximately 400 uh, civilian. Mm-hmm. How do you see how do you see those dynamics shifting and changing as we talk about the future policing? Well, as we look to we actually look to see the civilian population go up uh, because currently we have a number of sworn members who are doing what we what civilians in my opinion should be doing right. So as we look to to continue to civilianize. Um, we're going to see the number of civilian personnel increase and then have those police officers that are doing those civilian-type jobs move back out to the street. And we've watched how the dynamic of policing and even the numbers have shifted as the Baltimore population has shifted, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where you know, Baltimore population used to be close to a million people. Now Baltimore population is hovering around uh, a little north of the 600,000 600, number. Right. H- how do we see the uh, the policing needs adjusting as we're continuing to watch demographic shifts, as we're continuing to watch population shifts uh, within Baltimore? So one of the things that, that we that we look at when we sort of look at where the, the optimal levels in terms of uh, police should be um, is something called a relief factor, okay. right? And with that relief factor, um, we, we want to get to a point that for every officer we have working, we have one officer in reserve, so one officer off. Now, that's the, that's the minimal sort of relief factor that we want to get to. It's called a 2.0 relief factor. When we look at the, the optimal level we should be, we, we, don't, we never want to go uh, sort of below that leaf fa- relief factor because we have to, then we get into things like increased overtime where we have to literally draft officers to work overtime. So you as an officer, if you're drafted, you may have just worked a 10-hour shift. Now I'm going to need you to work another, you know, four, five, six, seven hours. Mm. Right. Um, and, and that's that's not good. It's not good for the for the health and well-being of the officer. Uh, it's a quality of life issue in terms of that officer's family. Um, uh, officers, when they're fatigued, uh, don't make very good decisions. Right. So we, we have to be very conscious of that. And so ideally, we want to have uh, at a minimum that 2.0 relief factor for every officer we have working. We'd like to have one in reserve. Right. And then. Um, you know, to the extent that we can have extra officers working in our more, more problematic areas of the city to uh, specifically target those, those hot areas or, or those, uh, you know, hot spots, we'll use those officers for, for tactical reasons uh, uh, so that we can, we can go after the baddest of the bad in the city. The, the final question I have for you is, is as you're thinking about your career in policing mm-hmm. and your journey in policing, uh, what's the conversation that you wish you could have had with the Gary Tuggle who just signed up to be an officer 30-plus years ago? Wow. Um, I, I would say that conversation would be um, you're about to go on an incredible journey. Um, you're about to uh, have the ability to just to help people, right? You're, you're about to have the ability to impact lives, Um you're about to have the ability to literally see the world, 
Uh, I spent uh, the first six and a half years of my career as a Baltimore City police officer and, and worked in a number of areas. But then I, I spent uh, about 27 years in my career as a DEA agent where I literally had the opportunity to see the world. I, I spent 10 of those years overseas, living overseas, and then uh, throughout the other part of that, just traveling um, with respect to work, just all over, you know, uh, Central South America, Asia, Africa, literally all over the world. Well, we're glad that, uh, that after having such a diversity of experiences and, uh, and such a diversity of insights that you're now leading and lending that back here, back home to Baltimore City. We're thankful for it. Thanks, Wes. That's a real compliment coming from you. It really is. Thank you. So, Interim Commissioner Gary Tuggle of the Baltimore City Police Department, thank you for your work. Thanks for your service. Thanks for everything you do for all of us. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. You're listening to Future City. I'm Wes Moore, and we are addressing the struggle over police recruitment today. Coming up, Anne Arundel County has been aggressively pursuing recruits. Their county executive, Steve Hsu, advocated for a new proposal for a small property tax cut and a 15% raise for police officers, all that in addition to a bonus to attract new recruits. He'll be joining us after the break to discuss that. But also joining us is Karen L. Boone, adjunct professor in the Department of Criminology, Law, and Society at George Mason University. She'll be helping us to understand how to best use strategic approaches to obtain and retain good cops. All that next. Stay tuned. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and welcome back to Future City, the show where we ask the question, what's next for our city and for our country? Today on the show, we're addressing police recruitment because, frankly, it's a challenge. Our police departments are struggling to obtain and retain good officers. So what's being done? What's working? What can we do differently? I'm excited to welcome to the show Steve Shu, who's the Anne Arundel County Executive and is doing some really interesting work on this issue. County Executive, thanks for joining us. Wes, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So uh, I, want you, I want to talk to you about your most recent budget proposal. Uh, how is this going to help with police recruitment, and why was that a direct focus? Well, let me say, firstly, that we are so proud of all our first responders in Anadolu County, police, fire, EMTs, sheriffs. They do such great work, and thanks to them, Anadolu County is the safest large jurisdiction in the state of Maryland and among the safest in the country. But like everywhere else, we face challenges with recruiting, particularly in the in the police department. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I think the national environment, uh, some jurisdictions showing disrespect toward their police and first responders has made it more challenging to recruit people into the field. Um, pay scales have made it challenging. And we are moving very aggressively in every way we can think of to improve our recruiting. And that includes more aggressive community engagement with open houses, 
uh, targeted recruitment efforts at colleges, including predominantly minority colleges uh, that specialize in criminal justice, like John Jay College up in New York. Uh, we focus very much on military recruitment, and uh, we have an Office of Community and Minority Affairs that focuses specifically on recruiting in minority communities, and it's working. Um, we now have 960 or thereabouts applicants for our next academy class. That's up 60 percent from the last academy class. And when you're thinking about the future of the future of policing, uh, the areas where there's going to be a greater level of focus, you know, we spoke earlier about uh, about STEM fields, technologies, how that's going to play into the future of policing. How do you see that playing into how you're thinking about the future of Anne Arundel and the future of Central Maryland? Technology matters today more than ever before. We've turned over 450 police vehicles and brought the most technologically advanced vehicles into our fleet. We are advancing our technology infrastructure for law enforcement at a high rate of speed, an enormously expensive multi-year project to make sure that communications and control uh, through technology is state-of-the-art. Uh, many jurisdictions are moving toward uh, body cameras and uh, car cameras, other technologies like that, uh, to better support the police work uh, that these folks do in the communities. Uh, lots of technology. Uh, of course, with their weaponry, we, we, we invest vast amounts of funds in making sure that police officers and sheriff's deputies have state-of-the-art equipment for their own safety and for the enforcement of our laws. When we focus on, uh, when we're talking about, you know, state-of-the-art technologies and state-of-the-art efficiencies, you know, one complication that people have talked about is, as we've talked about the future policing, is the militarization of police forces. How do we, how do we square that circle, the idea of, of making sure that we're getting our officers uh, what they need to be, to be safe to be in order to police communities, but at the same time address the concerns that some people have about the future of militarization of our police forces? Police today face threats that they have not historically faced in our society. Terrorism, state-sponsored terrorism, and the tools of terrorists are oftentimes much more like the tools of the military organizations of nation-states than they are the tools of common criminals that rob 7-Elevens. We can't have a situation where uh, the criminals and the terrorists outgun the police. So I favor uh, very much having the necessary equipment uh, be part of our arsenal here at the level of the local jurisdictions who are responsible for local law enforcement. Uh, the United States Armed Forces have been uh, very good about allowing uh, technology and equipment to transfer down appropriately and not excessively, in my opinion, mm. to local jurisdictions so that we do have the equipment we need. And in your opinion, what, is, what do you think will be the, the number one change we have to make uh, to ensure that Maryland has a great police force? What, what is, if you could say, okay, if we could, make, if we could change X, uh, I think it would, go, it would go a long way in terms of ensuring that we have what we need in order to properly, properly secure and, and probably make our communities feel safe. I, I think the elected officials need to communicate to their police departments throughout Maryland that they have the backs of their police officers. They're going to support their police officers and sheriff's deputies. That the problem is not 
police brutality on some vast scale. The problem is criminal misconduct. That doesn't mean there aren't occasional instances of police wrongdoing, and those should be uh, handled through the appropriate disciplinary channels. But it has become too much of a sport for elected officials around this country, particularly in some urban areas, to blame their police for the problems that are really caused by criminals. Steve Shue, the Anne Arundel County Executive, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Wes. Thank you. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. We're addressing lagging police recruitment and what's being done about it. Joining us now, I'm excited to introduce Karen L. Bune, who's the adjunct professor in the Department of Criminology, Law, and Society at George Mason University. Professor Bune, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you wrote an article for PoliceOne.com as part of their series on recruitment that was fascinating. Uh, And in it, you address some of the ways that we can ensure good cops are in our ranks and and making sure that we're recruiting them and retaining them. But first of all, I want to hear your thoughts. Why why has this been such a huge struggle to get new recruits? And and what is the new issue around that? Well, it's a huge struggle on a number of fronts. Um, A lot of young people today want to have a life outside of work, and they want regimented hours so that they can plan their lives. And with policing, you can't do that. Um, You're on rotating shifts. You may work overtime. You may work special assignments. You may be called in. You may have to go to special trainings. And so a lot of times a cop's life is not one that allows a lot of freedom to do a lot of other things. Um, Another difficulty is the current climate um, that's out there today with this, you know, the hatred towards cops and people putting cops down and the violence towards cops. Um, a lot of them are like, why do I have, why do I want to go in and do this? You know, what's in it for me? And why do I want to risk my life or, you know, risk being killed if, if they have a family? And so they figure they can just do something else. They also look at the money factor. They think if they go in the private sector, they'll make more money than if they go in the police department, despite police departments having made advancements in pay. Um, they look at that. Another factor I want to bring into the mix is, you know, a lot of them don't may have used drugs in the past, and depending on what drugs they used, it could knock them out of being considered for the police force. If somebody was into heavy drug use and they reformed themselves, and even though they had gotten clean, that might still be a factor against them, or if they've had any type of a prior criminal record, even as a juvenile or young adult, and they might have gone clean since then, that could still hinder them from getting on a police department because departments look at uh, integrity and ethical values, and particularly with what's been going on lately, that's really become a, a factor that they focus on is the value and the integrity of, of the person that they're hiring. So do police departments need to relook the selection criteria that we have for officers, uh, you know, being able to better adapt and think about that we have disqualifying factors that necessarily should not be disqualifying factors? I think a lot of departments have already done that. I mean, in the past, if you smoked marijuana one time, you were out. And I think they've over a lot of them have changed that, that marijuana is not a factor. You know, if you have a heavy cocaine user, that's a different story. But I think they have done that, and I think they're continuing to do that. But I think one thing that they should keep and, and really focus in on is the integrity factor and the character factor, because they have to make split-second decisions, and they have to use good judgment and know what they're doing and, and have the character and integrity to do what's right. And if they hire somebody who's deficient in that, that can have ramifications for the public, the community, as well as the police department. So um, 
I think they are always looking at criteria, but I think that they also need to maintain certain standards to hire a quality officer. And we, and we think about the role that positive interactions with police and, and community, the role that that plays in how the community views uh, police officers, right? I mean, I was looking at a, at a current Gallup study, which was, and we were talking about earlier, which indicates that public trust of police is at, is at an all-time low. And, and part of it, I think, to your point, uh, really goes back to the idea that we are now watching, you know, not just how, how interactions are, are, are playing out, but then also watching how video reactions and viral videos are playing out. Uh, what do you think have been the role of, 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 of cell phones, cell phone footage, cameras, et cetera? What role is that playing in how community views police, especially when you're having some of these interactions, particularly some questionable interactions, are the ones that are gaining so much attention and the ones that are that are really are going viral? Well, I think the cell phone videos, people have to realize that when a citizen is doing a cell phone video, you're not seeing the entire video from uh, the incident from start to finish. You're seeing a segment of it, or you're seeing the portion they recorded, uh, which may not be the whole thing. They may have come up on something. And so what you see is not necessarily what appear, what you are looking at is not necessarily the reality of the situation. It may be at that moment, but you don't know what preceded that. You don't know when, what happened uh, following that. And so they focus in on that and say, look, this is a violent cop. And I'm not saying all cops are good. There's a bad apple in any bunch, in any occupation, in any field. But the majority of cops are good, and they try to weed out the bad ones. When police have the video cams that they have now, I think that's very beneficial because that way the the department can see it. It can prove what's going on with the officer. If there's a bad officer, it's going to show it. If it's if it's a good officer who had to do what he had to do for whatever legitimate reason, it's going to prove that. So I think the cell phone virals um, and the way they're portrayed on Facebook and other social media can be very damaging to police. Um, and because they're not showing the entire episode. So when we're talking about, and you, and you mentioned earlier about things like the body cameras uh, and, you know, the fact that you're watching so many departments moving further and further and faster and faster into universal body cameras, uh, also the releasing of footage from body cameras, you think that's something that's going to fundamentally help uh, this situation and help the connection between the community and the police and the police force? I do because I think it's showing that the police department's being transparent and they're they're showing it they're they've got it on tape they, it can be if it if it becomes a court case and has to be evidence it can be evidence either pro or con and I think it's showing what's really happening and you know I think there's a lot of people out there who really don't understand the nature of law enforcement they they've never walked in their shoes I've done many many hours I've worked in the field for years and I've been out on the street with the cops on ride-alongs and I would encourage every citizen to go out and do a ride along in a major city police department and ride a midnight or an evening shift and be out there in the city and see what they go through. People just don't, it's not like on television. These officers put their lives on the line every day and I have the utmost respect for them. And the situations they encounter and the way they're oftentimes abused by people who are either on drugs or drunk or just violent, nasty people, aside from what they do to try to help people and really care about people, um, they get a bum rap on how they're perceived and how they're viewed. And so I don't think a lot of people really understand their role and what they have to face. And I don't think the average citizen, nine times out of ten, could even attempt to do what they do. Karen L. Bune, who is the adjunct professor in the Department of Criminology, Law, and Society at George Mason University, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. I'm Wes Moore, and you've been listening to Future City. 
Coming up after the break, how can diversity and business tactics revitalize our police departments? We'll be speaking with Seema Lieberman, diversity and inclusion culture change consultant on what police departments can learn from forward-thinking business strategists. That's next. Stay with us. Hey, welcome back to Future City. I am Wes Moore. So on today's show, we've been tackling police recruitment strategies, what's working, what isn't, and what's the future of policing in America. Joining us now is Seema Lieberman, who is a diversity and inclusion culture change consultant. She's also the author of three books on diversity and inclusion and is the host of the podcast Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People, which you can find online at www.raceconvo.com. Com. Seema, it is great to have you on board. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. And so first of all, can you help us to understand what you do as a diversity and culture change consultant? I work with leaders and organizations to create cultures where everyone can do their best work and to create cultures where people feel included. And when we look at inclusion, we look at it from a point of view of how can the organization be most successful, which means we look, have to look at also who's not included and what needs to happen. And for most organizations, they need diversity because diversity helps propel their business to new markets and new ideas and new risk-taking. Great. So, and you think about it, how this works in the issue of police recruitment. Uh, you know, we've been we've been talking this show about the challenge of police recruitment all over the all over the country, um, and really been trying to spend time asking our guests our guests what do you think is going on? Is it bad PR? Is it bad relations with the public? Uh, you know, what is happening when it comes to the challenge of police recruitment around the country? Well, there's a lot of reasons why there's problems with police recruitment right now. There's the internal issues of just issues around benefits, around quality of life for being a police officer, but there's also issues around feeling included, especially if you're looking at people of color, uh, and also the, the, uh, the reputation that a lot of police have. That has not helped. So, so being a police officer doesn't have the attraction, particularly for a lot of young people, to get the right kind of police officers. And are we watching a challenge when it comes to to diversity uh, among amongst police departments? Uh, are we watching a challenge that is a challenge of recruiting black police officers, recruiting white police officers, just generally? Where do you see some of the biggest challenges that are existing, particularly when it comes to police recruitment? Well, there's a general issue of, of recruitment, and I've, st- I've actually talked to a lot of police officers lately, and um, they talk about the issue that they have around recruitment. So it's recruiting everybody, recruiting young people, but in particular recruiting black and brown police officers because of the rep- again, because of the reputation that police have in a lot of communities. 
and a lot of fear that people have and lack of uh, lack of of community relationships. So people don't want to be a cop. And so, but when we think about the uh, uh, the idea of recruiting more black and brown police officers, there are many people who would argue that having more black officers is not necessarily not necessarily going to fix all the problems. I mean, we think about a serious altercation we had here in Baltimore in mid-August where, where there were two officers, uh, both of them black, who were interacting with people uh, in, and, and, you know, really physically assaulting, uh, you know, people that really caused uh, not just a national uproar in a viral video, but that officer being, being uh, you know, leaving the force within 24 hours. Those were two black officers. So is a challenge or is the problem or is a way to solve the problem just thinking that we have to recruit more black officers or black or brown officers, or is there something deeper? Well, something deeper because recruitment alone and numbers alone, that's not the answer. It's what happens when you bring people into your organization. How do you train them? And I know I've heard several black police officers talk about the fact that after a while, after they kept on hearing negative things about black people, they started believing those things. And there's also a mindset now, unfortunately for a lot of police officers, that they're not really going in to help people. They're going in to just police the community and almost be an occupying force. And what that does, it also makes people suspicious of everybody, and they look at the community. And when I'm saying they, I don't mean everybody because there's a lot of, of cops of that course. aren't like this. But when people go in and they have that mindset that they're going to find something wrong, that these people are the enemy. And also if you have particularly like people of color, it's okay, i got to deal with these people because they're going to make everybody look bad. I can't let these people be an embarrassment to me as a black person. And so sometimes they're harder on, on people who will like them. But on the other hand, there's also a certain mindset and there's a training that people do not get when, they're, when they become cops. I mean, again, I'm not talking about all places. I mean, there's cities like New Haven where they've done a lot of work on uh, humanizing cops and humanizing people. That's a really important point that you just touched on. How do you institutionalize humanity? How do you institutionalize and train on humanization of a population, particularly if it's a population that the officer might not have history or have any, any real connection to in that way? Years ago, I trained correctional officers in, in one county, and most of the correctional officers were white. A lot of people that they dealt with that were in jail were black or brown, not all. And there were some officers who, who, were, who were black and brown. And one day, one of the black officers came up to me and he said, you know, you got to understand a lot of these white guys, they're from rural areas. They've never had any contact at all with people of color. The only people of color they have contact with are the people who are in the jails. And the cops said, and he said, and they have issues with us because they really don't see it. They don't still see us as people who they put in their jails. So in... Um, Police academies, even if they've gone beyond the academy, it's important to be able to set up ways for cops to interact with the com- with communities, but to also not more than just giving out ice cream, but really to have deep conversations, meaningful conversations, really listen, not be defensive, and understand who they are as people, which helps the people in the community understand a lot of the police officers as people. And when you do that, when you're able to develop those relationships, then it's also easier to isolate racist cops, cops who are brutal, because the other cops know that they do have support from the community. I also think it's important for 
police officers to start meeting with groups like Black Lives Matter and not get defensive and really sit and listen. That makes a difference. I mean, I've seen it happen. I've seen what happens, and I've sat in meetings here where I live where I've seen police officers meet with people in the community, and it's a whole different dynamic. So when you're, so when you're looking at the, the, the piece of advice that you would give uh, to departments right now about ways to be able to de-escalate the tension and to really think about the future of your recruitment, the future of your ranks, and the future of your makeup. What is that piece of advice? Well, if you want to look at what corporate America does, if you look at, like, say, lessons from corporate America, in corporations, oftentimes, they meet with people from different populations that are inside the organization that use them as resources. So I would say that it's really important for police forces to start meeting with people who are doing recruiting, start meeting with black and brown officers, start meeting with also meet with police officers who've left the force, find out why, talk to, talk to the black and brown police officers or other people who are, who care. I mean, I know a lot of, I've talked to white officers who, who really care and want to see things change. Talk to them, find out what they've heard in the community, what they think needs to happen. Set up focus groups with people in the community. And there's ways of doing it. I mean, I've always been very interested in doing dialogues between police and the community. So start having some of those dialogues and, and, and listen. And also train people who are doing the recruiting. I mean, they've been, um, some of the research has shown that in some areas where they're able to start recruiting more police officers of color or more women or people who are just not representing the police force who they really need, oftentimes they don't get past the screening phase. One could be because sometimes it's because of past misdemeanors, minor crimes that people have, have gotten through, but sometimes it's also because of bias. When you have people who are doing all the recruiting are white, there's unconscious bias towards recruiting black and brown or, and, and, and police officers of color. And sometimes you might see white officers getting hired when the issues are the same, but they will, but they will exclude a person of color. So the standards will be different. And I'm, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not generalizing. I'm not saying this is for, every, for everything across the board. But if we really want to make a difference, we need to start drilling down. We really need to start looking at what the issues are so that people aren't afraid of each other. Yes. Seema Lieberman, who's a diversity and inclusion culture change consultant, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you so much. This was a great show, but before we close out, I just want to leave everybody with a few personal thoughts. I want to first start by addressing this false dichotomy of either supporting police or supporting community, because both are made to be these talking points that are resting on vapid ground. Anyone who knows me or knows my history knows that I am hyper supportive of veterans and veterans issues. But people also know that I am very critical of some of the wars that we have been involved in. Part of that value of our democracy is to question and it's to ask tough questions. And I don't feel like these are mutually exclusive thoughts. The best way we can support veterans is to be thoughtful and critical when we decide to put them in harm's way. And to also be incredibly thoughtful about the way we're going to support them after we made the decision to put them in harm's way. 
by supporting our first responders, our police, our fire. It's not just about getting them the best equipment or the most advanced military technologies. It's about creating communities that are more supportive and welcoming of their presence. We should acknowledge that police recruitment is a problem. We all want a police force that is more representative, a force that has a vested interest in the community because it is their community. So we also can't bash a force and then turn around in the same breath and ask people to join it. We know the Baltimore police force needs to get better. We have seen reports, consent decrees proving that fact. And for those of us who grew up in Baltimore, this is not new. It is a systemic problem that has not been trumped up or exaggerated. But for those of us who think about Baltimore not in a past tense, but think about Baltimore in a future tense, we need to make this better. If we want police to be viewed differently, we need police to be different. And if we want our police to be different, we need to encourage pathways for an inclusive and diverse police department that the community views as an asset to the community and not as a threat to community. Our future city will always need men and women willing to run to the threat and not away from it, and we are so grateful for them. But we also need men and women to understand why some people in the community view them as the threat and to know that the only way we're going to change that is by time, listening, and deliberate action. Future City is produced and edited by Katie Marquette, and I want to give a special shout-out to our superstar intern, Nina Bowman. The show airs the third Wednesday of the month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. You can listen to this show along with previous episodes online at wypr.org slash podcastcentral. You can connect with me directly online as well on Twitter or on Instagram at I am Westmore. For 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Wes Moore, and thanks for listening. Future City is sponsored by Janine and Josh Fiddler and supported by the Baltimore Community Foundation, whose vision is that Baltimore boasts a growing economy where all have the opportunity to thrive. 